I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Lee Hudson of Hudson Vineyards and also the Hudson Ranch on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Levy, I'm doing fantastic. So your dad bred cattle. Well, my dad was an engineer, born and raised in Hoboken, born in 04, same year as Frank Sinatra. He um, was the son of an Irish immigrant and only child in his family who got educated and ended up ultimately starting an engineering firm in the state of Texas in Houston in 36. I was born in 51. He had bought a ranch in the late 50s, right outside of Houston. And um, as a boy, I worked there the summers and um, I found the work to be um, satisfying in that it was cyclical and it was repetitive and it was constant and um it was direct it was a direct relationship between what you did and what you got and that that made sense to me as a young man in that i like many teenagers was looking for some sort of meaning of life and and so that it stuck with me kind of think that we're born more or less the way we end up. And uh, the sweat and the toil and the, the smells and the, those things kind of clicked. And you took a high school year in Provence. Yeah. 67, 68, I was um, 16, 17. And um, the school I was going to actually offered a junior year abroad and uh it was a really a fortunate decision on my part i lived with this french family in a town called valrias of five thousand people went to the lycée there drove a little moped to school every day 10 kilometers i got to know what the mistral was all about you if you didn't get it going you'd get it coming back <laughs> And the, the 
the family was was one of these kind of early back to the country families that came out of Valence, a town to the north, and um, they'd purchased a, an old farmhouse and redone it. And uh, one side was a small creek. On the north side was a vineyard. On the west side was a truffle orchard. On the south side was a lavender. So I was surrounded by these incredible crops. And um, in the summer, they would distill the lavender, and the whole valley was smoky, but with the smoke came this incredible smell of distilling lavender. And I think that the, the kind of the way the French in that era looked at life about how meals were important, how the feel and the touch of the food and the, and the life had a, had a richness to it that, I mean, it wasn't fancy. It was very colloquial. It was very simple, working class people that really portrayed the kind of the senses of, of life that I appreciate today. The other thing that it gave me was my ability to speak French, which paid off surprisingly later. French became a natural language to me. I, I dreamed in French. The other thing is to be on my own, isolated from my family and everything that I knew that was familiar. It gave me a sense of confidence that otherwise I might not have found as a, as a young teenager. The Westerbecks, the family that I lived with, the woman was a, was a very educated antique dealer and the Husband was a Gaullist military man from the resistance, and uh, their whole family and, and I became very close. And I went back recently, and they had just passed away. I felt like I'd really made a mistake. I'd just gotten there too late. Um, but, it, you know, it was one of these things that we have that happened to us in our lives that we don't expect. And we don't really recognize the, the impact. I planted my first garden there. And planting that garden was that kind of that second step to this kind of, this agrarian kind of sense. I mean, I was raised in Houston as a city kid. Uh, but there was something about that direct relationship with a package of seeds and turning the soil and planting the seeds, weeding the garden that really, you couldn't go back. You, you got only can go forward from there. You can put work into it and see results, which not everything in modern life is like that. Yeah. It is a direct relationship of work, effort, and return. And it has to do with the cycle of the year, and the years repeat themselves. It's, it's kind of a calming thing for somebody who's concerned about why we got here and what we're doing and it allows us to get away from the anxiety of life and get into the action and really be engaged so you actually studied plants in college yeah i, I said i i want to study agriculture so got to university of arizona at tucson as a horticulture student 
and graduated in 1974. And while I was at University of Arizona, I went up to the north coast of California and visited San Francisco and Napa and Sonoma. And um, I was uncertain of exactly how I was going to use my degree in horticulture. And I went on the deck of Sterling, the winery uh, north of St. Helena, south of Calistoga. And I stood on that deck like so many tourists had before and after me. And I was just, boom, it hit me. This is agricultural Yosemite, the native natural landscape coming and hitting the man-made landscape. Hit me very hard and made me sense that, well, why don't I study viticulture? So I graduated and moved to France and said, oh, I'll find a job in France, easy. And after four weeks of looking for a job, I still was jobless, and I was starting to feel like I'd made a big mistake. And then I headed north to Burgundy, and I was fortunate to get an introduction with the head of the Chevalier de Tastevin, who I regretfully cannot remember his name, but he gave me the list of 10 people, and I went down the list, and the first nine rejected me um, wholeheartedly with gusto. And uh, the 10th was Jacques Sess, and Jacques said, well, Lee, let me check with my wife. She's in the hospital having our first child. That's Jeremy Sess today. So I went back to our hotel, and I was quite anxious. And he was good enough to offer me the job. And um, the domain was really he and three employees, me and two other hands. And uh, we did everything from all the vineyard work to all the cellar work to all the bottling and the fermentation. And it was a mind-altering experience. Jacques could not have been a more magnificent mentor. The other two employees got 30 liters of wine in their pay a month. And I, I looked at it and I said, I don't need 30 liters of wine. He said, well, you can have six bottles of wine out of my cellar. And Jacques' father was a great gastronome, a very successful business entrepreneur. And Jacques had both his cellar and his father's cellar combined there at Maurice Saint-Denis. And he probably was the only person in Burgundy who actually had a bottle of wine outside of Burgundy in his cellar. He had a very international, which was quite unusual at the time, international group of wines. He was very generous with that. I, I didn't know that much about wine. It was the agricultural component of it that had really driven me there. But the his level of, of sharing information was quite unusual for French people in Burgundy at that time. They were reticent to, to really open up to foreigners, and he was really remarkably generous. Outside of the field and the winery, which were great, remarkable experiences, 
was the opportunity to to taste and to visit with really some of the great winemakers of Burgundy. I mean, I remember visiting Pierre Romanet at the end of his life. And I think about those wines, the very different wines than being made today in Burgundy, made in a more oxidative style than they are today. They were sordid wines. They were oftentimes 18-month-long in, in the cellar. And we would go to visit with Rubel de Monti and spend the afternoon in his cellar. And his wife would bring down to the cellar head cheese, and he would open you know, reach into the fur of the of the cellar like the Burgundians are so proud of doing and pull out a 30-year-old bottle and and have it with his with his wife's head cheese and I mean those were for a 22-year-old young man I was it opened my eyes one and it two it made me more fascinated by this metamorphosis of fruit into wine. It's not a coincidence that it's the sacrament. It's not a coincidence that it's spoken of so frequently in the Bible. Is this transformation of grape juice into a beverage that can be as sublime as those wines were to me as a young Nubian. I mean, I was a young man without any background in wine. I mean, wine around the house, but no, no connoisseurship. I mean, it, Burgundy was a different world at that time. Devin de Jacques might have a visitor a week, and it would be somebody from the trade. Every once in a while, I would be a consumer. A very closed, very closed community. We would walk up the street on a Saturday afternoon. We had time off, and people would close the shutters as we got close, and then they would open the shutters again as we passed. Jacques would then take us to Becky Wasserman's house, and we would taste all these incredible wines that she would put together, and she was still living with Bart at the time, and and they were so friendly and so the, the, as cool as the community could be, once you were within the community, it was very embracing, all embracing. I do remember going to Charles Rousseau's place in Jovray and tasting his Charm Chambertin and his Chambertin. And then Jacques would bring bottles of his Charm Chambertin. And there was a real collegial, there was this great interest. I think it was an opening in Burgundy of people wanting to share and to understand other people's activities. And I think that was kind of the beginnings of this, of what we saw in the 80s in Burgundy, where you had all these young kids. I mean, Dominique Lafon was maybe one of the youngest of that generation coming out. And you saw the kind of the old guard being interested in sharing and talking and understanding that I don't imagine was there in the 60s. I mean, it, was, it wasn't until 
the late 60s that they had the first tractor in Burgundy. You would spend all day long in a vineyard pruning or hoeing or head suckering. And because the vines are only three feet high, you were down, bent over. And you would straighten up to get your back straight and there'd be somebody right next to you working from the other other property and they, you wouldn't even exchange a word. Their crew and our crew wouldn't even talk. It was very isolated. And I think that's changed in many ways. Was that pre-sorting table or did he have a sorting table at Dujac? No time? sorting table. The 75 vintage was a mess. It, the rain started early. There was a horrible botrytis in three quarters of the clusters. There was a plywood table with some plastic on it and we would dump into that. That was a situation in which optical sorting tables would be perfect. <laughs> um, what is remarkable was how good the wine could be from grapes that looked so bad. The wines were remarkably good. And Jacques was pretty close with Aubert Duvalet, right? Right, right. Now, Aubert and I spent with Jacques a considerable amount of time. Aubert was incredibly, as, as he still is today, a remarkably charming disarming and pleasant man. I, I think the wine world would not be what it is without Aubert de Villain. He's really a remarkable man. I mean, you know. My wife and I went to the Domaine for the first time. So André Noble, uh, this was my first wine tasting ever in my life. And I think Andre Noble saw it in both my wife and I's eyes. We were recently married, and we walked in there. I had, I had either just gotten my job or I hadn't gotten a job yet. I don't recall. We went in there, and he took great satisfaction in getting us completely looped. Uh, he was a very humorous and very friendly man, and. Uh, it was one of those tastings where we tasted through all the barrels and said, oh, no, we have the Latasha. Blah, blah, blah. You know, spitting was just partially done. We, he really laughed. He must have laughed at us walking out of there. But André retired that year. And I think André's son took over as cellar master. Aubert had plenty of things on his plate. He was a remarkable host. He and his wife, Pam, were so generous. It reminds me a lot of, in hindsight, of what we came to know as California's willingness to share information and for just our innate curiosity to do things better. I know Aubert was personally inspired by Robert Mandavi. He had met him and really admired him early in his career. You could sense that in this group of winemakers that Jacques was with. And they, and they had this same, I mean, when you met Bob and you saw the fervor, this incredible drive to want to change what we're doing and improve it. Um, yeah, I, I, that doesn't surprise me, you saying that, because in, in hindsight, 
it was a group of winemakers that for the first time were talking amongst themselves, sharing wines, sharing methods, talking of how they could improve it. I mean, color extraction. I mean, you know, the Burgundians had decided to not import, these people had not import red color from the South. And that chapelization was something that might be necessary, but should be minimized. And how do they get these fermentations going with native yeast and without overheating? I, I don't know this, but I believe this to be the fact that is that it was really the first time that the Burgundians were really sharing information. That was, a, a, I think, a, a very pivotal point. Um, at the end of my stay, I wrote a letter to the only man I knew in California, um, emeritus head of the University of California at Davis, Maynard Ameren. And um, he was at that time president of the Wine Institute. And um, in Burgundy, when I started thinking about my return to the United States, I said, well, what am I going to do in the United States? I said, well, I'm going to go to California and work in the wine industry. So the only person I knew was Maynard. I wrote him a letter. And um, two weeks later, I got a response back. And um, Maynard said, well, Lee, you know, I would suggest that you not get a job in the wine industry, but that you enroll yourself at the University of California, Davis. And me not having been a very good student, I had always been a, a diligent student, but not a good student. It never came naturally to me. Um, I was very disappointed in the advice. It was something I did not want to hear. But never ask a mentor what to do if you're not willing to listen. So I dutifully made application, and somehow I got in. I, I can't imagine that I would have gotten in today. So I went through these courses and it was, there were some really smart kids in the class, <laughs> really very capable and the curve was really tough. And so I, I really had to buckle down. Who were your classmates? Well, I, I think that's probably my best education. People were really excited about the wine business and it's flourishing and it's this incredible growth that was going on and exploration and there were a lot of 20-somethings. I think of Dan Lee of Morgan Winery in Monterey, Kathy Corison, Tony Soder, Michael Martini, Tim Madavi, Dick Ward, who just passed away, and David Graves. Both started Saintsbury, Dave Ramey. John Consgard. The friendships that we made were friendships that we stuck with for, I mean, for the rest of our lives, both as friends and as client supplier. I remember Dick Ward was the TA, the teacher's assistant in uh, quantitative analysis. And he was such a hard ass. And I went, God, how can a guy my age be such a hard ass. 
the whole quarter, I mean, the guy is just being such a stickler. I mean, the teacher was a nice guy, but here's this guy who's my age, and he's just on my case. Well, Davis is in a remote location, but one of its great benefits is very close to Sacramento, where Cordy Brothers is. And Daryl Cordy is maybe one of the greatest gastronomes on the West Coast. I mean, a tremendous wealth of knowledge and came from a grocer's family and maintained his position as a grocer, but became the purveyor of the best wine store in Northern California. And so one of my classmates worked there, uh, Kevin Hamill, and um, we'd go down there and Dick would work part-time there. I went down there and there was a whole bunch of 1923, 26, and 27 Madeiras for $13 a piece. And I said, well, I'll take a case of those. And Dick and Kevin were working there. And Dick saw that I bought those wines. And I can't believe how much nicer he was in my quantitative analysis class. I said, God, Dick, you want to come over and taste the wines? (laughs) Unfortunately, Dick passed away of prostate cancer last year. He and I became very close friends, and I sold Saintsbury grapes for 15 years. You're both really associated with Carneros in an era where it was just kind of getting going, right? Yeah. Yeah, Dick was a really forward thinker. He and David started Saintsbury the same year I bought my ranch in Carneros in 1981. We were both on the committee to found... Carneros is the first sub-appellation in Napa County and Sonoma County because it happened to cross both. But the time at Davis was a really pivotal time. Again, one of these moments in your life that you don't recognize how fruitful it really is until it, it starts to accumulate. Unlike a lot of the people that you were in school with, you decided you wanted to do grape growing. You bought a significant ranch when the prices were much lower than they would be today. I mean, almost ridiculously lower. And you were interested in a grape variety set that became popular and is now quite popular. But at the time, I think maybe people were thinking more into the Cabernet idiom. Yeah. Because of my introduction in Burgundy, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir seemed to be kind of natural. There was kind of a concern that California might never produce a good Pinot Noir. At the time, I mean, there was Dick Graff at Shalon. There was Josh Jensen at Calera and Joe Swan. And Sanford and Benedict in the Central Coast. And I visited all those people, talked with them and looked at their sites. And it did seem like there was some real possibility. And so I continued to look on the coast. I wanted something that was a bigger piece of property that would have both ag land on it and for livestock. And so that limited to me where I could look. I really avoided Napa County because I felt like Napa County was all done. It was not quite as adventurous as I was feeling. But ultimately, a piece of property did end up in southern Napa County between the town of Napa and Sonoma, a mile from the county line. And it was a 1,300-acre ranch and 
two additional acquisitions of neighboring property, I, being a Texan, don't covet anybody's land but my neighbor's. There were two additional purchases. Today, the property is 2,000 acres, and um, we have 200 acres of grapes, and we make seven different kinds of wine. It started out that I decided that I wasn't going to do a winery and that I would just grow grapes. So I planted Pinot Noir and Chardonnay first and sold them to classmates of mine at Davis. Uh, John Consgard went to work for Peter Newton and Dick Ward and David Graves had Saintsbury. And I, so I sold the Pinot Noir to, to Dick and Dave at Saintsbury and the Chardonnay to Peter Newton. And well, it continued on like that. Every year I'd plant 10 more acres or 15 more acres and I'd get another classmate to buy them. Uh, Dave Ramey came in early. Helen Turley was not a classmate. And then Steve Kistler started buying Pinot Noir from me. At the same time, I got fascinated with vertical trellising, head suckering, things that people weren't doing at the time. Because originally it was T-trellis when you did the 80s plantings, right? The 82 and the 83 planting and the 84 planting were all just three-wire T. That's like California sprawl, right? The California sprawl. And it was in 86 when I did my next planting. The 84 vintage was wet, and there was a lot of bunch rot. And I really, that really freaked me out. I didn't like it at all. I just... I said, this is, we got to get airflow in this canopy. And so, I mean, it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people thinking along the same lines. You know, if the 70s was the decade of enological expansion and advancement in California, the 80s was really where we, for the first time, really turned to the vineyards. And we said, okay, what can we do in the vineyards to? reduce inputs, reduce impacts, fewer sprays, and using Mother Nature to our benefit. So in 86, to get more airflow into the canopy, I took a California sprawl vineyard and I replaced the the line posts and turned it into a vertically trained vineyard. And that vineyard still exists today. And it was our first experience with vertical trellising. And I soon converted all our California sprawl into vertically trained vineyard. It was so obvious that rot was reduced, that mildew pressure was reduced, and that better sunlight exposure matured tannins better and matured the fruit better. So vertical trellising happened in the 80s, and also leaf removal in the canopy started for the first time. Head suckering started for the first time. What I think started to fascinate me more was in certain varieties was the fact that some of these numbered selections that we had had enormous clusters. Clonal material that you'd gotten from Clonal Davis. material, like clone 104 Chardonnay that was a um, heat-treated selection of clone of Chardonnay that came out of plant foundation material in Davis. And we would just see high incidences of rot even 
without a lot of rot pressure. The clusters would crush the berries from expansion of the berries, and all you needed was cool nights. Uh, you don't really need moisture for botrytis. So I started looking for plant material that didn't have such large clusters and got the names of growers who might have them and went and visited vineyards every August, picking three or four vineyards that I would go and, and visit to look at what the canopies look like, look what the fruit looked like, see if there was material that I might want to bring to the ranch. It's hard to tell in the winter, but if you go before harvest, you can tell. If you're interested in viticulture, the time to see a vineyard is right before harvest. Everything is in order. You see what the fruit load is. You see what the shoots, the laterals, the leaves, the condition of the leaves. You can spot viral situations. And the more you see, the better you get at it. So I would go into vineyards and I would select these loose clusters of Chardonnay. And most of their heritages went back either to the original Marisu vineyards planted outside of Gilroy or the plantings that were done in Livermore by the Wente family. Those were the two sources of Chardonnay that existed in the 60s, total of about 200 acres of Chardonnay in, in California. They had gone to vineyards like Mount Eden and to Stony Hill and to vineyards in the Alexander Valley. And I would go into those vineyards and I would select individual vines that looked visually clean, didn't have any obvious viral problems or any disease issues. And then I would use them as budding material. So today we have 12 different selections from vineyards that represent what was in California prior to 19. 70. So before the introduction of heat-treated clones, and when right. you heat-treat something, what you're doing is you're taking out the virus. So you're looking at a whole different kind of cluster. A completely different cluster morphology and very different must. The must analysis on these, the juice from these selections is distinctly different than, than that of the heat-treated selections. I mean, the skin-to-juice ratio is much higher. Therefore, the phenolic components in the must are very different. And the natural acidity of the must is much higher. And the vineyards, because they're lower yielding, mature substantively earlier. They make very distinctively mineral musts. They're not pineapple-y. They're not very fruity. They're more linear and stony must rather than these fruity, pineapple-y, and banana-y type of musts. John Kongsgaard is a longtime both friend and customer of yours for fruit. And one of the things he told me is that the method that he uses in terms of the death and resurrection, the sulfur regime, the approach towards overwintering, and the use of new wood, none of that would be possible on different kinds of fruit. If the fruit wasn't that sort of pH level, if it wasn't that kind of yield, if it wasn't that kind of acidity, you wouldn't be able to do that technique on the fruit. You could do it, but it would not be successful. You end up with these flabby products. The phenols in the, in the wine, I mean, 
these small clusters of Chardonnay kind of resemble red fruit from a phenol perspective, from a mouthfeel perspective. And I think that's really important to hold up to this two years of aging and sorely and stirring. I've tasted that method on the French selections of Chardonnay grown in California, and the results are not nearly as good. And it's because they've selected that fruit for a completely different climate. They need low acid musts and very early ripening and high sugar accumulation at low sunlight. So we grow the French selections in California and they end up being low acid and very high sugar. And so you don't get the acid and the sugar crossing at the right point. They work fine for Burgundy, but we need to select for low sugar accumulation and high natural acidity because we have sugar that oftentimes surpasses acid development. So I think in both red and white fruit, we need to select for higher natural acidities and lower natural sugars. Because with the vertical canopy and with leafing and with row direction and drip irrigation and head suckering, all these techniques that we've developed in good plant material, we've really turn the vine into a much more efficient producer of sugar. To avoid having sugar go too high before the acid drops or vice versa, you have to get the plant material suited for the location. And that doesn't happen at the first planting. I have some vineyards that have been planted three times since 1981 because the plant material just wasn't right. When you look at what everyone is doing with their own protocol for how they want their Chardonnay grown, and then you taste those wines, what have you learned about that for how you want to grow your block of Chardonnay? Well, in 03, when I decided to jump into the wine business, I asked John if he'd be the our consigliere. And I was kind of inclined to make a Chablis-esque style at that time, crisp and reduced. And John said, you know, if you want to make Chablis, why don't you move to Chablis? It's great to have a mentor as your age. Um, I said, okay, I'll go with that. And so we've made really kind of Consgardian Chardonnay. In other words, very similar to what, say, Ramey and Kistler and Peter Michael do up to the first year relatively high levels of new French oak. I mean, the percentage might change from producer to producer, whole cluster, native yeast, full mallow. But many of those producers have decided not to do a lot of stirring. And this method is, is really driven by a lot of stirring, relatively speaking, and also 22 months in barrel. And no sulfur addition after the initial, at the crusher, 10, 15 parts, and then no sulfur until the aldehyde levels get 
high enough to the little bubble above your head says sherry when it really does start to smell like floor yeast. That method does something to the width and the breadth. I think of that kind of wine as being the kind of the bones of Chardonnay rather than being the kind of the crisp component. You can't do that with musts that don't have high natural acidity and high phenolic levels and mineral components. But it has transformed the original material completely. And that, I think, is really appealing. I mean, I like crisp, bright wines, and I'm happy to make them out of other varieties. There's a place in my life and all our lives for crisp, bright whites. It's just... There are not many varieties you can do that method with, and Chardonnay is really, really malleable and able to take it. It's a, it's a very, very malleable grape. It responds to location very significantly, but it, it also responds to distinctly different winemaking styles. So John has located one of the features of that as low nitrogen in the soil. And is that something you would agree with? Is it devigorated low nitrogen soil at Hudson? I think I would express it more in looking at the vine's physiognomy rather than what it's responding to. I think that moderate to low vigor, no laterals, shoot growth that only requires one hedging, by the 10th of July, the canopies would started to be leaning over and we would hedge. And if there's enough of a crop load, if there's a very low crop, then it'll keep growing. But if there's a reasonable crop load, two or two and a half tons, depending on the variety, that vineyard will start to come under the pressure of the crop load and stop growing naturally. And I think that's the kind of the perfect goal is to have the vines stop on their own, under the fruit load and its nutritive capacity. But nitrogen would certainly be one of the components that would cause that soil moisture would be too, and water holding capacity, uh, sunlight and exposure. And then probably width of row, because your rows are fairly wide. I mean, they're not super close. Right. We have eight-foot rows. Eight foot and six foot are kind of like in the standard middle. There are some four and meter plantings. I don't know that I've ever seen a real difference between yields in plant density and wine quality in plant density. I think that what's important is that if there's more individuals, you can have a vineyard that will be longer living because the replacement of one vine is not as dramatic in a 2,000 vines per acre than it is in 800 vines per acre. Percentage-wise, then the vines are younger is what you're saying. Right. And replacing a vine in an existing vineyard is a really slow process. But that's a super interesting comment that you're basically saying you don't think that yields are related to wine quality in a way that I think a lot of people assume they are. Well, over yields or under yields are both bad. 
You can under-yield a vine and you can over-yield a vine. And that is based on variety, site, and selection. So if I think of a variety that we have that has a tendency to overcrop pretty easily would be Syrah. If we overthin it, it'll mature too quickly. But if we let it produce five and a half tons per acre, the tannins won't mature. It'll produce the sugar, but the tannins will be rough and aggressive. So you have to make a decision. This is my opinion. You have to make the decision on what your target crop load is in the third week in July. And that's long before you know what the rest of the year is going to be like. And so you have to say to yourself that, well, let's thin it for any eventuality. So if you, if you take it down to two tons per acre, it will ma- possibly mature too quickly in a warm fall. If you leave five and a half tons per acre, it might not mature quickly enough in a cool fall. So we take it down to somewhere in the middle, three, three and a quarter. But th- that depends on the buyer as well, because these acreage contracts are really focused on the buyer deciding what the ultimate yield wants to be. I mean, if a winery wants two tons per acre, I'm, we're happy to drop it to that as long as they pay us by the acre. So this famous winery takes this row, and this famous winery takes this row, and they want it different. So you'll do what they want you to do, and then you've probably tried those wines later, and you can draw these conclusions as to what this results in. Our Syrah comes from a block where, where we have a neighbor who farms right next to us this exact same block. We have about an acre and a half, and he has an acre and a half, this other winery. They crop at twice the level we do. They do everything exactly the same. The vines look completely the same. And I don't know that I've come to this conclusion, but... I might be inclined to say that we undercrop it. That having a wine that's a little less concentrated might be nice. But that's totally subjective. I, I think that's a subjective thing. I mean, I think that it depends on what you... I mean, there's a, there's a tendency today to have wines that are a little less extracted amongst certain people. and But then then you miss out on all the people that like these really, in, you know, much more extracted wines. I think as long as you stay within the limits, it's a subjective call. If you can stay below the phenolic kind of breaking point where you won't ripen the phenolics and you stay above this kind of super maturation that can happen at very low yields, you're just going to create wines of different style. Uh, I mean, Cabernet Franc, I think, is another serious example of this. I mean, we grow our old master, Cabernet Franc, and Arietta grows their H Franc in a very similar fashion. One cluster per shoot, no touching clusters. Between two and a half and three ton target might end up less or more than that, but that's our target. And we get fully ripe fruit. 
if you crop Franck, where you've got touching clusters and you're at four and a half tons per acre, you'll produce Franck that will be lower in color and higher in green character. I mean, more, more Loire-esque. If we wanted to grow a Loire style, a Bourgogne style, or Chinon style Cabernet Franc, I think the first thing we would do is increase yields and reduce leafing so that you had more shading. Merlot is the same way. If you crop Merlot where the clusters sit on top of each other, you're going to get green characters in Merlot. And some people don't want green characters. There's now kind of a call a little bit in, the, in a particular market for more green flavors. That's kind of not where we come from. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people who don't grow vines would assume that the way that you would make those stylistic differences would be to pick earlier or later. So if you wanted more green flavors and more kind of Loire flavors, you would pick earlier. But what you're saying is there's a lot of decision-making that goes into that, and one of them is yields, and another one would be leaf coverage. Picking has to be decided not on bricks, but on the whole balance. I mean, you need to look at the total amount of tartaric, the total amount of malate, the total amount of fructose and glucose, and the total pH as a combination. And those things are all moving in a curve and intersect at different points. Picking at lower sugar might be absolutely right if the other things are in line. I mean, if the pH is in line and if the total acidity are in line. So, I mean, what would help total acidity be lower at harvest is to increase the yield. And that would reduce sugar accumulation, allowing acid to transpire from the fruit. It's a combo, right? I mean, if I wanted to make a Loire-style wine, I wouldn't grow Cabernet Franc the way we're growing it. I would definitely not want to have it have no touching clusters produced at two and a half tons per acre. It's just you're going to get sugar accumulation too rapid. 09, where we had this August heat storm, and we had this heat spell where we had all this raisining happen, and it really happened on the north-south rows. On the east-west rows, it didn't happen, even with the same varieties. Row direction is, is a big deal. It's kind of a difficult infrastructure once you've done it, you can't change it until you replace it. So we've done some interesting things recently with, with shade cloth on the west side on north-south rows, in particular on sun-sensitive varieties. A white shade cloth hung in the fruit zone on the sun side seems to have done quite a bit of benefit for our Grenache, which probably should be grown in a California sprawl to protect it from the sunlight. But since it's planted and that distance between the rows is so tight, we can't convert. Because Grenache really can tend towards overripe flavors if you let it. It also sunburns really easily. 
And the sun burning has a tendency to prevent color development. Grenache is a white variety in a red dress. We've been growing Grenache since 93 in Carneros, which is an unusual place to be growing Grenache. It, it doesn't like rain in the forecast. It wants really warm weather. It's a retains its acidity tremendously. You can see sugars at 25 and still have a 3.0 pH. I mean, it, at least where we are, because we don't have a lot of heat. But Grenache does not like the sunlight on its fruit. And right after, let's call it the 4th of July, we then put the white shade cloth that is bundled up right below it and we reinstall it so it protects the west side of those clusters. And we've seen color in the wine go up. That's really interesting. You know, you would assume that more sun would mean more color in a lot of grape varieties. That's the opposite, right? It bleaches it. At least my experience, it bleaches it. Because we've had to go in and drop all those clusters historically. The last green fruit pass we do is to go through on the sun side and drop all the clusters that are bleached. In 09, you really had to combat sunburn. And you came up with techniques, like you were talking about the shade cloth, as a result and so are there other examples of that? Are there specific vintages that have really affected your technique in subsequent harvests? 89, the wet year, uh, vertical trellising really became very important to me. And early ripening varieties and leafing kind of came out of 89. 2011, the summer that never existed, I suppose the longing for a very cool summer is because it produced really great wines that are leaner in, in extract, which I think has kind of affected our winemaking of trying not to go for quite as much extraction. And then the crisis of 2017, where we lost 150 tons of fruit to smoke taint. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. The smoke taint thing was really, oh, what a shame. So much good fruit. It smells just like an ashtray that we're going to have to sell in bulk. I suppose what we learn is humility, and humility can always be helpful. We're constantly trying to inspire people to do better work and, and uh, in both the winery and in the grocery store and the, in the, in the vineyard. And, um, it's, it's about the people, right? I mean, it really is about people. And, uh, that's the beautiful expression of, of, of what we do. Lee Hudson dreams in French when he's asleep and dreams of inspiring people when he's awake. Thank you very much for being here today. It's been great. Lee Hudson of the Hudson Ranch and also Hudson Vineyards. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, 
and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. At Hudson Vineyards, we have five flagpoles. There is the uh, American flag, the Mexican flag, the Texas flag, and the California flag. And uh, we fly the Texas flag because my wife and I are both from, from Texas. The Mexican flag in honor of so many of our great employees. The fifth flagpole is reserved for two purposes, uh, visiting dignitaries which we have about 75 different flags just in case. If someone comes from Alabama, we want the Alabama flag out there. And, and if someone comes from Japan, we want the Japanese flag out. So uh, we like raising the flag for our, our visiting dignitaries. But the other reason why we, we have a fifth flagpole is that during harvest, the first night of harvest, we raise the Jolly Roger. And at the last day of harvest, we take the Jolly Roger down. And the Jolly Roger represents all hands on deck. Anything could happen. And um, we do all our harvest at night. So it's, uh, it's quite a nightclub out there. The Jolly Roger is, is the little rebel in all of us, and anything could happen. The nice thing is that almost every year, something great happens to the Jolly Roger. Now, last year, someone came and lowered the Jolly Roger and cut the, the crossbones out completely, and it was just empty. The year before, someone stole the Jolly Rogers. That made me very happy because I knew there were pirates in the neighborhood. 